Good morning, church. I should probably put that on. I guess that would help, wouldn't it? Um, well, welcome to all of you. Welcome to uh, everybody at all of our campuses and anyone who's listening online. We are glad that you guys are here. Again, want to say happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, for those of you who uh, have served, uh, we uh, just appreciate your sacrifice uh, tremendously. So thank you again for that. Um, but today is a great day that uh, the Lord has made for us, and I'm glad to be able to share from uh, Scripture, from the Word of God with you. Um, now, I will also say, um, as we continue moving on in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the past few weeks I've had the opportunity to be um, just kind of looking over the text that we're going to be in today, and it has kind of filled me with uh, mixed feelings, I guess, uh, feelings of both uh, excitement and anticipation, um, as well as uh, maybe a little bit of a sense of Maybe hesitancy is the right word, um, because this passage that we're going to be in today uh, is difficult. Uh, now, uh, a lot of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, as we have seen, uh, is difficult teaching, uh, because, you know, Jesus doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't pull any punches from his listeners. In fact, just the opposite. He raises the standard to almost these impossible heights, and so it is just difficult teaching. But I think that the passage that we're in today, uh, as, as, as I see it, might be um, perhaps the most difficult of the teachings of Jesus in this whole section, uh, and not uh, because it's not true or because it's difficult to understand, but because it's really, really difficult for us to put into action, for us to put into uh, practice. Um, and I think that this teaching today hits every single one of us. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are at. I think this applies to every single person. Nobody is exempt, and it is just uh, difficult. Uh, now, while a, a lot of us know that we need to hear this, nobody wants to hear us. And so uh, a little bit uh, of me feels kind of hesitant, and yet at the same time, I've also uh, been really excited for today because uh, I believe that our subject today hits at the very core, the very essence of the message of the gospel. And while Jesus' words are hard, I think they're also the good news and the hope for all of mankind. And so with that, we'll dive in here in just a moment. But first, why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in together. And God, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross for us. God, may we be forever grateful for what you have done for us by paying the ultimate sacrifice. God, I pray that you will open up our hearts this morning and our minds to be receptive to your words and your truths. I pray that your truth will be spoken this morning. Um, and God, I pray that you uh, just fill us with a, a motivation, a desire to, uh, to love one another and to love all of your creation. That is in uh, Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. Uh, today we're going to continue on in Matthew chapter 5, so if you want, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, open up and follow along or on your phones or whatever it is that you use. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, in the uh, back of the chairs somewhere nearby. If you don't own one uh, or if you can't get one, then uh, you can take that with you, um, put a lot of wear in it. That's our gift to you. Uh, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 as we continue on in this Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've been here for the past handful of weeks, uh, and we've started to see some recurring themes come up as uh, Jesus is teaching his followers here, and today he's going to continue that on um, in Matthew uh, chapter 5. Um, but before we get there, I think that it is uh, important for us to uh, kind of lay this foundation to recognize that we are all starting from the same point, and that is this, that we are all born with, we have this built-in, innate uh, understanding or desire for uh, justice, for fairness, 
Uh, now, I think that's because that we are all created in the image of God, but whether you believe in God or you don't, we can all agree that we understand that we all have this, uh, this sense of justice, this desire for right and wrong, for fairness. I think this is just a part of what it means to be human, to want what is just and what is fair. And this is why uh, societies, going back for thousands of years, they all have these, uh, these laws, these moral codes that govern and dictate how people are supposed to interact with each other so that uh, one person doesn't take advantage of another person. Uh, now, these legal systems have never been perfect, right? Uh, because we're all imperfect people and we live in a world that is broken by sin, yet these are our best attempts at justice and trying to make sure that the ground is level for all of us, that the playing field is even, that everything is as fair as it can be for everyone. And when we see injustice happen in society, it often makes us angry, right? Um, about a week ago, uh, my family and I had to uh, go to the store. We were running some errands. We were out and about. And so uh, we went to the store, and it was pretty busy. And so as we got into the parking lot, I decided I would drop my wife and my kids off at the front door, and then I'd go and try and find a parking space and then go join them. And so I did that. I dropped them off, and I was driving around, and I found a parking spot. And as I started to pull into this parking spot, the person that was on the other side started backing out to leave. And so I thought, well, great, I'll just pull all the way through, and that way I'm facing, you know, the opposite way, so when we get out, I can just pull straight out and not have to back up or worry about traffic, as some of us do often, right? And so as they're backing out, I begin to go ahead and pull through into that spot, but what I didn't realize is as I'm taking this spot, they start to drive away. While somebody else was turning in the aisle, they had seen this car begin to leave. And so they have their eyes on this spot thinking, oh, that's mine, it belongs to me. Well, I couldn't see because of all the cars that were in the way. And so this car, uh, they finally, as they backed out, they drove away. And as I'm about to be all the way in this spot, this other guy comes up and he sees me. And it was uh, very obvious uh, to me uh, the, uh, uh, the emotional state of this person as they see me pulling into their parking spot, right? Now, I, um, uh, I, I don't le- read lips very well. Um, and I don't know a whole lot of sign language, um, but it was very obvious to me that in this guy's mind, like I had just committed one of the seven deadly sins, right? Like there's, there's greed and there's, uh, and there's sloth and there's uh, lust and there's wrath and there's taking my spot at the Sam's parking lot, right? And any one of these will get you a one-way ticket to the fiery pits of Gehenna where there'll be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, so as I pulled in, I see this guy and I see that he's really upset that I've taken this spot that apparently belongs to him. And so, you know, naturally I tried to wave him off. I was going to put the car in reverse and back up and let him have the spot. But before I could do so, uh, he, you know, in his anger just kind of sped off and went around the corner. Well, I thought, well, gosh, I, I, I didn't see you there, you know. So I did what is uh, dangerous for a person of my stature to do. I thought, well, I'll wait for him and talk to this angry guy. And so I pulled in the spot. He comes around, takes another one. Uh, I wait for him to get out. Uh, and when he does, I said, man, I, I'm really sorry. I was, I was, I was trying to wave at you. I was going to back up. Let you have this. I, just, I just didn't see you there. And he just kind of shrugged it off and said, no big deal. And he went, he went upon his, uh, his own way. Um, but we all have this sense of justice or we want fairness. When, when we're wronged, when we think that we're owed something or something belongs to us, we don't, uh, we don't like to have our rights violated, right? Because we all have this innate sense of justice. And you don't have to look very far to see that in this world. 
Like we go for a, a nice simple drive, right? And, and guys, uh, especially, you know, somebody squeezes in front of you uh, from the off-ramp or from the on-ramp and, you know, Lord forbid, we have to take off our cruise control and instantly like your head poof, explodes and you just have these visions of pummeling them into submission, you know what I'm saying? And like, ladies, before you think that that's just a guy problem, this, this anger or whatever is just a guy problem, do you know the real reason, ladies, do you know the real reason why most fathers, most husbands, most, most dads are really hesitant to coach Little League? It's because we are deathly afraid of all of you moms out there. What these, these sweet little ladies that bring the cupcakes and the, and the juice boxes after every game? Yes, but hell hath no fury like a mother whose kid pitched two innings when another kid pitched three. Am I right? Thank you. You've been to Little League games before. Yeah, but this built-in sense of justice, like, uh, this, this happens, uh, we can see this even in kids before they speak the words. You look at psychologists and sociologists, they, they see this in, in young kids before they can even talk when you've got uh, two kids playing together and all of a sudden one kid takes another kid's toy and what happens? Like that kid begins to use their you know, little building blocks as a hammer to smash the other kid's face in, Right? And later on, they'll learn the words that match the feelings. And every parent of young children knows that every child that, you know, for some point in time, their favorite phrase will become, that's not fair. fair. Right. Because we all have this sense of justice, this sense of fairness, this, this desire that our rights not be infringed upon. And I think that that is the context of the passage that we're going to read today. That's the... That's the human nature that Jesus is speaking into. And so, again, we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 38 if you want to follow along there. Um, but, we're, we're, again, we're seeing these recurring themes happen in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is speaking, and, and he's talked about a handful of different things. Well, he's going to continue on uh, today as he starts in verse 38 is where we'll pick up. And uh, it begins, uh, he starts by saying this. He says, You have heard that it was said... Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. We'll pause right there. Um, thus far, uh, we have seen Jesus use this phrase several times, right? You have heard that it was said. I um, mean, in the past handful of weeks, uh, Matt has talked to us. He's shown us how when Jesus uses this phrase, he is referring back to the law of Moses back in the Old Testament. And in this section, Jesus is specifically quoting from Exodus chapter 21, verses tw uh, 23 through 25, which comes right after the record of the Ten Commandments. But right after this, in that previous chapter, uh, there's many more laws for the kingdom of Israel regarding civil issues, things like uh, personal property, or in this case, personal injury. Um, but I think that it is important for us to understand uh, the context of the passage that we're in today if we go ahead and read that. So in Exodus chapter 21, let's go ahead and look at these verses that he is quoting here. In verse 23 through 25, he says this. He says, but if there is serious injury... You are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, uh, uh, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now this sounds fair, right? Because one injury demands equal repayment. This ensures that everything stays fair and it also deters one person from harming another person. 
Um, But the problem is that in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, these people have begun to, uh, they've reduced themselves to obeying the letter of the law. We've seen that happen thus far, right? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. And so these people, they, they took this law to understand, oh, as long as I don't kill anybody, then everything's okay. Or you've heard that it was said, uh, don't commit adultery. So as long as I haven't like, actually engaged in the physical act of adultery, then everything is hunky-dory, everything is fine, no problems. We're all okay, right? Except Jesus says, no, you're, you're trying to follow the letter of the law, but he's trying to teach them about the spirit of the law. Well, not a whole lot has changed today, I don't think, at least. Um, in our house, we have a rule, much like many of you, uh, that the kids aren't supposed to eat outside of the dining room. They're not supposed to take their food out into the living room or wherever else. Does anybody else have that rule in your house? Okay, I'm the only one with that rule in my house. Well, that's one of the rules in our house, um, but uh, our kids know it well, and my, uh, my youngest child, Aurora, who is uh, five years old, she knows this, uh, this rule very well. Um, and so uh, not too long ago, just within the past couple of weeks, uh, one of our neighbor friends uh, was over, and so there, it's in the morning, they're, they're having breakfast, uh, and I'm kind of watching things, you know, out of the corner of my eyes, we're all getting ready and everything, and I, and I watched this scene unfold, which was uh, uh, entertaining now, um, but uh, uh, I see Aurora say to her friend, she says, you know, we're not supposed to have food in the living room, because they're eating their breakfast, and they're kind of goofing off, they're not sitting at the table, they're kind of wandering around as five-year-old girls do, um, but she says to her, you know, we're not supposed to have foot, uh, we're not supposed to have food in the living room, um, but I, as I'm watching out of the corner of my eye, I see that they're over here, and they're kind of teetering on the line between the dining room tile and the living room carpet, you know, and so uh, she knows this rule, and she said it to her, but then I see Aurora say to her, she says, but I can put my foot over the line, To which the friend responds to Aurora. She says, no, 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 no. You can put your foot and your mouth over the line as long as your food doesn't cross. Now, I'm not certain how you have a conversation with a five-year-old girl about trying to capture the spirit of the law, uh, but I did the best I could. Uh, But we're, we're all like that, aren't we? We try to find the letter of the law, and and where's my boundaries? As long as I stay inside of this line, then everything is okay. Just don't cross the line, and if you do, just make sure it's a a little part of you, but the most of you is still on the other side of, of the law, right? We do that all the time. But the problem is here that this passage... Uh, this passage where people had interpreted this to say, oh, well, eye for eye, uh, you know, uh, hand for hand, uh, tooth for tooth, all this stuff, th- that means that when I get back at you, we've got to make this even, or, or it kind of encourages them for retaliation. But the problem is that this passage is not about retribution. This passage in Exodus, this passage is actually about protection. In fact, I would encourage you uh, to read the chapter in Exodus 21 at some point. Uh, these, this passage, uh, these are rules that are written about how to treat servants, how to treat women and children. And the whole, the whole concept here is to try and keep others from taking advantage of or abusing those in the society who are seen as weaker or who, people who couldn't defend themselves. In fact, this particular law here is in the context of protection for women who are pregnant. You see, this law isn't about retribution, about retaliation, about revenge. This law is about love. But sometimes, 
Sometimes because of our hard hearts, we miss that. We miss what it's all about. But here in this passage in Matthew, Jesus begins to refocus their eyes on the spirit of the law. So he continues, we'll pick back up in the middle of verse 39 where we left off, and he says this. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt or your tunic, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Uh, to understand this passage, I think there's a, a couple of uh, historical contexts, uh, some, some things that we need to get, but it's not difficult to understand. But Jesus uses a few different examples. In the first one here, he says, if anyone were to slap you on the right cheek. Now we think, you know, if somebody hits you, if somebody hurts you, they injure you or whatever. But a, a great friend of mine uh, recently pointed out that for a right-handed person to slap somebody else on the right cheek, this would be a backhanded slap. Now, we don't do that real often today. I hope you don't do that real often today. Um, but, uh, but if someone were to do that, you understand very quickly what they mean by this, right? See, this is less about injury as much as it is about insult. This has, this has less to do with uh, your physical harm than it would be about your honor. See, to backhanded slap somebody across the face would be a horribly demeaning insult to them. But Jesus says, no, no, don't get back at them. Jesus says you need to let go of your pride. You need to let go of your own honor. And then he used the example of, a, of the tunic or a shirt. If somebody wants to sue you and take your tunic, then give them your cloak as well. Now, we don't wear uh, tunics uh, very often unless you go to lots of sorority parties or something, but that's not something that we wear today. But the tunic for them was the undergarment. It was what they wore on the underneath. It was their, their main garment. And then the coat or the cloak was what they wore on the outside. And so if Jesus says, give away your tunic and your cloak, what are you left with? Not a whole lot, really. Uh, and so the person would be left completely exposed. Now, this isn't you know, an exact perfect parallel today, but it's kind of like if Jesus were to say to you, if somebody wanted to sue you, then just give them your, your tidy-whities and your pants. Just give them everything. That, that's how these people hear it. And so he says that, that would leave them completely exposed, completely naked, and maybe even feeling shame or discomfort. But he says, don't retaliate. If someone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them the extra mile. Now, he tells us that we are to treat other people the way that we want to be treated, but he doesn't tell us that we are to treat other people the way that we have been treated. Uh, we all know who President Abraham Lincoln was. He was our 16th president of the country and one of our uh, most well-respected and beloved historical figures, and rightly so. Um, but most of us also know that he had a whole lot of hurdles along the way, a lot of struggles, a lot of opposition, one of which came through the person of his war secretary, a guy named Mr. Stanton, um, uh, who often uh, uh, who criticized him and gave him a lot of uh, uh, just, just trouble. And so one time a clerk asked uh, President Lincoln what he thought of Stanton, and Lincoln said that he felt he was a, a good leader. He was straightforward and almost always right. But the clerk looked at him and they said, uh, Mr. President, do you know that Mr. Stanton thinks that you are an ape? 
and he criticizes you as a fool every chance he gets. How could you say such a thing? President Lincoln looked at the clerk and he replied, You didn't ask what Stanton thought of me. You asked what I thought of Mr. Stanton. How do you respond to others who don't treat you very well? Are you quick to retaliate? Do you return a harsh word with a harsh word? Do you want to make sure that she will never, ever, ever talk to you again like that? Or instead, in humility, are we able to learn to let go of our pride and practice self-control? Jesus calls us not to retaliate, but then that, at least in my mind, that brings up the question for me, does this mean that we're just supposed to completely roll over when somebody offends us? Are we supposed to be completely passive towards others who hurt us, who injure us? And if that's the case, then how do we deal with the fact that this same Jesus who says this, he often responded to his own critics? Or, or this same Jesus was the, was the guy who flipped over the money-changing tables in the temple. Is he really saying that he just wants us to be a doormat and to do nothing when we encounter injustice in the world? Well, no. But maybe our response is supposed to look different. In fact, isn't that, isn't that what this whole thing has been about? Isn't that what we've been talking about this whole time? That we are called to be different. To live differently than the world around us. And so, what are we supposed to do then when people harm us? Well, I think that Jesus tries to answer that question in the next few verses. So, if we pick back up in verse 43, he continues and he says this. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors? If you greet only your own people, what are, you do, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? In essence, Jesus is saying, what good is it if, if all you do is just love one another? If you just love the people that love you, what good is that? Everybody does that. I think the Greek word here is pronounced whoop-de-doo. Like, there's no, there's no thing in that, that that makes us different, that sets us apart from the rest of the world looking on. Uh, see, to love the person who loves you, that's what everybody does. That's what's natural. To, to loan money to another person and expecting full repayment from them, that's not called being a Christian. That's called being a bank. But Jesus calls us to be different. Now, a lot of people in a lot of churches take great pride on how much they love each other. And you know what? This is a good thing. It really is a good thing. We are called by Scripture to love one another. In fact, Jesus will even say that that's how people will know us is by our love. But loving only one another doesn't set us apart from anyone. That's just our human nature, to love the person who loves you back. But can you love the person who hurts you? So instead of retaliating, instead of getting revenge, instead of getting even, Jesus calls us to actively love others. Well, that's a very different response. Now, does this mean that we're supposed to be, you know, filled with these warm fuzzies for the people who hurt us and insult us? Well, no, that's not 
necessarily what Jesus is saying, but what he does say is that instead we're supposed to act in accordance with what is best for them instead of our own feelings. And you guys, you guys know this. See, revenge never fixes the problem. Revenge doesn't restore what is broken. Revenge instead actually often makes things worse. Because what happens when we retaliate, right? Don't I usually overestimate how much you've hurt me and so I respond by uh, going above and beyond and then you do the same thing and eventually uh, things just escalate completely because we're both just fighting fire with fire and eventually all that comes of it is that we burn our house down and everybody gets hurt. But instead, Jesus calls us to love one another and to love our enemies. And I think in this very last verse, I think, he, I think he reminds us why. In verse 48, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, we are to love our enemies. Why? Because we are made to be like God. A reflection of his image. Do you remember that? We're called to follow him and to, and to love our enemies. And this is what I think it comes down to, church. This is what I think it's all about. This, this one thing, if, you've, if you don't remember anything else, I think this is the one thing that Jesus is trying to get here. And it's this. If you want to follow Jesus, we're going to have to love those who don't love us. If we want to follow Jesus, we have to love those who don't love us. Now, we're not just talking about some abstract enemy over there, some, you know, their team versus my team, or some people halfway across the world. See, it's, it's one thing to love our abstract enemies out there, but this isn't actually loving anyone at all. It's just loving the idea of love, but Jesus doesn't call us to love an idea. Jesus calls us to love a real person, your neighbor, your boss. That guy at the office who uh, talks down to you, who never pays you back, who insults you behind your back. That guy? Yes. That guy. And it's funny because oftentimes we'll pray things like, Lord, please send somebody to show the love of Jesus to them. And all the while, Jesus is saying, I'm sending you to love them. This is what Jesus tells us to do. But it's not just what Jesus tells us. It's exactly what he did for us. As Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, but let's not forget that in the last hours of his life, Jesus was beaten and he was mocked, but did he strike back? Didn't they take his tunic and his cloak from him and cast lots for them? Didn't they force him to walk the extra mile carrying his cross up to Calvary? And yet, in the very act of being crucified, Jesus cried out, Lord, forgive them because they do not know what they do. And you know what? That's not fair. Why should Jesus, the perfect Lord of all creation, have to pay for my sins. He shouldn't. It's not fair. But when it comes down to it, do we really want what's fair? I mean, do we really 
want what's fair? And I would say, no, I don't think that we do. I mean, yes, we, uh, we say that we want retribution when we see injustice in society, and certainly we demand justice when we have been treated unfairly, but what about when we have sinned against our own neighbor? Do we cry out for justice then? No. No, we don't. What we want is grace, and we throw ourselves at the mercy of a forgiving God. And at his own expense, that's exactly what Jesus offers us. So maybe if we spent more time recognizing our own sin, our own debt, it will help us look on our enemies with love and with compassion instead. It'll help us to realize that, you know, I am no better than you, and if anyone deserves to be punished, then I deserve it twice as much. But by the grace of God, and only by His grace, we can be justified through His blood, you and I. Because though we sinned against Him, He paid our price for us. And so, how do, we, how do we do this, church? How do we, uh, where do we go from here? Because it's one thing to hear Jesus' words, and it's a completely different thing to put those into action. It's, we can say, yes, we're supposed to love our enemies, and that's great and wonderful. Yay, hoorah, go church, go. But it's a harder thing to practice whenever somebody is offending us, when someone is infringing on our rights, isn't it? And so, so how do we do that? How do we, how do we put that into practice? And, and to be honest with you, I think that this is something that every single one of us is going to have to do uh, the work, and it's going to be hard, and it may mean that you have to open up some wounds and allow God to heal them inside of you. But every one of us is going to have to figure out how we do this in our life. But I think that there are at least a couple things that all of us are going to have to do in order to move forward as a church. And there's probably more, but for our time's sake today, I, I, I think there's just a couple of things. And that's, the first one is this. I think that if we're going to move forward from here, um, the first thing that we have to do is we've got to let go of the idea or the expectation uh, that everything is going to be perfect and nothing bad is ever going to happen. Uh, uh, where, did we, where do we get this idea uh, you know, that, that somehow everything's supposed to be just great in my life, and how dare anybody else ever, you know, infringe on my rights, or, or how dare that person get, you know, my order wrong in the drive through or whatever it is that makes us angry. Uh, how, how, are we, how are we supposed to do this? Uh, but but we, don't, we don't get this idea from the world around us, and did, did Jesus tell us that? No. In fact, just the opposite. Suffering is a promise. Jesus said that in this world you will have trouble. He said that people will insult you and harm you for my sake. But Scripture says and said to rejoice when you suffer because it is in that time that we are made more like Jesus. And, and I remember the words of Paul in Philippians. When he writes to the Philippians from a jail cell, and what does he say? He said, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to what? To suffer for him. I, I love the words that we find in 1 Peter in uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Uh, Peter is writing to the church, and he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though it was something strange was happening to you. But rejoice 
inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. And if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you should suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Does this sound familiar? Blessed are you when people persecute you. In verse 19, he says this. He says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to what? To do good. See, suffering will come, but instead of retaliation, we are to do good. Because if we want to follow Jesus, we have to love those who don't love us. So I think that's one of the things we have to let go of this idea, this assumption that, that we have, uh, that everything should be great and everything should be fine and, and everything should be perfect, nothing bad should ever happen. But the other thing that uh, we have to do, and I think that this is a harder church, at least it is for me, and that's this. If we're going to love people who don't love us, then we have to love the gospel of Jesus more than we love our own rights. Now this... This is hard. This, this is really, really difficult. Because, you know, when, when we are wronged, when we are, in, when we are uh, offended, when people step on our toes, everything inside of us wants to scream out and just, just cry out foul, and we want to get even. But the Bible calls us to something different. Uh, Paul, as he writes to the Colossians in chapter 1, he says this, he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see, the most amazing thing is that even though I was his enemy, Jesus would save a wretch like me. That even though I have built up this mass of unforgivable debt, God not only found a way, but he made a way to reconcile myself to him and to make peace between his enemies by his own blood on the cross. And through that one act on the cross, he both did the greatest act of love and the greatest act of justice at the same time. He paid for my sins and yours. So in the end, we find that God is not fair. What do you mean? Isn't God just? Well, yes. Yes, God is just. And God himself claims the right to vengeance. And one day, every debt will be paid. And no bad deed will go unaccounted for, whether we pay for it ourselves or we allow God to pay for it by casting it on the cross of Jesus. Yes, God is just, and God is good, but God is not fair. And for that, I am eternally grateful. Let's pray.
God, thank you for the cross of Jesus. Thank you that though we were enemies, Father, because of our sin, we were uh, hostile to you in our minds, God. We were uh, sinful. We hurt you, Father. We hurt one another. But in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, God, you stepped out to us who were once enemies, and you brought us nearby, showing us your love. Father, thank you for doing that, for setting that example for us. We love you, Father, and it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.